All right, good morning, church. If you could turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And it's always like, you know, I miss preaching weekly. At the same time, I don't miss preaching weekly. But one of the hardest things about preaching, like, quarterly is just picking what to pick. And the last couple times, I was able to just pick topics on my heart. But it's always my preference to just pick a passage and then go deeply into the passage. So... We're going to be jumping around from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 12. So if you just want to have your Bibles open there. This is a passage that I feel like I just want to share with you because it's gotten me through some difficult times. And it's also maybe the most commonly used passage in my life when I counsel others. And so um, just wanted to share it with you. Okay. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Father, we want to first just remember what this is. This is not a mental exercise. This is not a time for us to just study and learn. But this is a time for us to worship. We want to experience you. We want to experience your goodness, your love, your power. And that's not something any man can do on their own. That's not something we could do to change one another's hearts or to change our own heart. God, we are very, very limited. But God, I know when we know it has to be your spirit that leads to true transformation and experience of you. And so every time we listen to your word, if there is repentance and faith that occurs as a result of it, we know it's your spirit doing a miracle in our hearts because on our own, our hearts want to run away from you. On our own, our hearts are stubborn. But I pray that right now your word would fall upon good soil and that soil and the the seed would bear fruit a hundredfold. And so would you meet us where we are? Would you touch our hearts? Would we listen to your glory and would we preach to your glory? Help me to be careful and accurate and humble and tremble before your word. And may that be the attitude of our congregation as well. Would you bless our time and bless the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the book of 2 Corinthians. And just to give a little bit of background to 2 Corinthians, um, Paul started the church of Corinth. And... He stayed, if you look at Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 11, it says, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God. This is a pretty long time he spent with this church. It's a church that he clearly loved. And of all of his letters, there's no church that he wrote to more than the Corinthian church. And you see his love and affection throughout the you know, throughout the letters to the Corinthians, you see that they have all types of problems, but constantly he's affirming his love for them. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse four, for example, says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundance, abundant love that I have for you. Later in second Corinthians seven, two, he says, make room in your hearts for us. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And so Paul was not just a missionary, but he obviously had a very strong pastoral shepherding heart that really cared for the people. But as a missionary and as a church planner, he's constantly moving around. And while he was gone, this group of quote unquote super apostles have now entered the scene. 
They're trying to undermine Paul's ministry while at the same time building up their own. They're, that guy, he's so weak. Paul, he's so weak. Look how strong and competent we are. Look at our resume. These are the guys you bump into them and there's always something macho about them. They, they love to talk about their strengths, about their resume. They have this big trophy room set up at home. They talk about their religious heritage, all their spiritual accomplishments. They love to see their names pop up in the newspapers. They seem to be very eloquent. They have stories of powerful experience. They're presentable. They're so strong. And at the same time, we may think of Paul as one of the greatest Christians of all time, but what they're saying is that, that guy Paul is such a weakling. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, they talk about Paul and say, Paul's, quote, Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That guy talks big in his letters, but have you actually seen him in real life? He's not very impressive at all. In fact, he's sort of pathetic. Is he of Christ? Is he even a believer? Is this guy really an apostle? Have you heard him speak? Paul, he's not very eloquent. He's not very articulate. Has he really served Christ and done the things that we've done? Has he gone through the things that we've gone through? Does he have the resumes and trophies that we have as super apostles? And if there's one thing we know about the apostle Paul, he's not insecure. Yeah, he's not insecure. He never tries to puff up his own ego. He doesn't need to defend his personal honor. But the problem right now in this situation is that the Corinthian church is being swayed away, not just from Paul's influence, but from Christ. They're not just ruining Paul's credibility. They're pulling these people away from Jesus. That's the problem. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 3 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away, led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12 through 15 says, and what I am doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who acclaim, like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. He says that these super apostles are not actually of Christ. They're actually powered by hell. They're demonically led. They're servants of Satan disguised as angels of light. That's who he's battling here. This is not like an in-house minor issue amongst Christians. These men are leading the Corinthians away from Christ. Or at least that's what they're trying to do. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 through 12 is being forced to defend himself. And we have to understand that he does not like this. In fact, he hates it. The last thing he wants to do is talk about his own ministry, his own credibility, his own resume and all of his achievements. But he has to, in this case, for the sake of the gospel, out of a love for the Corinthians, he has a pastoral heart. He's gonna have to talk about his spiritual resume. He's going to have to set the record straight. In one sense, he has to reveal how glorious his resume is. 
And he's going to have to show that he's strong. Not like a humble brag, not like a subtle brag. He's going to have to boast in himself. And in his words, this is foolish. 2 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 2 Corinthians 11, 16 through 17 says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as a Lord would, but as a fool. It's like, why are you guys making me do this? I feel like such an idiot having to talk myself up. Jesus didn't talk like this. My Lord didn't talk like this. It's a foolish thing to describe, or it's a good way to describe those who like to boast in themselves, who like to talk about their own strengths. They are fools. But Paul here is forced to foolishly defend his ministry for the Corinthians' sake by boasting about his strengths. I'm such a fool. And one of the things that these super apostles would say to them or attack Paul is he doesn't have the resume we have. He hasn't done the things that we have done, all the acts of service that we have for Christ. And so look at chapter 11, verse 21, all the way to verse 29. He's going to have to foolishly respond to this accusation regarding his lack of service to Christ. Verse 21 says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from these thing, other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Okay, we'll stop there. Paul, at this point, you would think this is like the end of the argument. Okay, look at my spiritual resume, all that I've done for Christ. Here's another accusation of the super apostles. Paul has not, that weakling has not had the spiritual experiences that we've had. He hasn't had the visions and revelations from the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 says, I must go on boasting, there, though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not other, utter. You think you've had these special experiences? I will tell you about my heavenly experience. This is the ultimate spiritual experience, the granddaddy of all spiritual experiences. 14 years earlier, Paul had an encounter with God that was awe-inspiring. He hasn't mentioned it since then. 
probably it happened somewhere between Acts chapter 9 through 13, and then 14 years later, he hasn't mentioned it since then. 14 years later, he mentions it where he had an experience where either in the body or out of the body, he's not sure, but he went to the third heaven. Third heaven, first heaven in the Jews' perspective is the sky, the atmosphere, okay? Second heaven is like space where the stars are. Third heaven is where God resides. Paul, what happened? I got taken up into heaven, and I've heard things that no man can utter. Like, what, what, a, what a bragging point, right? Anytime we have any type of spiritual experience, we make sure we publicize it. We make sure everybody knows. Why didn't he reveal his greatness earlier? He could have, but he knows that would have been foolish. You can't brag about a spiritual experience as if it's something you did. You can't brag. You can't boast about your spiritual experiences that are by the grace of God. Paul knew it was foolish to boast about having an experience of God. That's a gift. And in this passage, notice that he talks about himself in the third person. Why does he talk about himself in the third person? I think it's just because he doesn't want to get all tangled up and big-headed about an experience that he had 14 years ago. He doesn't, he later says in verse 5 to 6, I don't want you to judge me on my 14-year-old experience. Rather, judge me by who I am now. But here, I love this twist here, okay? Here's where it gets so interesting. This is the cleverness of Paul or the cleverness of God. Paul never wanted to brag about his strengths like these super apostles did. What he really wanted to brag about, what he really wanted to boast about was his weaknesses. He flips the argument around and these guys say that your weakness is the reason you are disqualified and Paul flips the argument around and you don't understand guys, my, my weakness is the very reason for my effectiveness. Let me talk to you about my weaknesses. Look at chapter 11 verse 30 through 33. Just back a couple verses. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And when you read this passage, you would think, okay, he's in the middle of this section where he's talking about his strengths. He says, God is my witness. I am not lying. And you would think he's going to tell about this amazing missionary accomplishment where I went to this unreached area and I converted thousands of people and they came to Christ. That's not what he does. You invite Paul as a guest speaker. He comes to our church. Paul, tell us something inspiring. Tell us about your most recent missionary trip. Tell us stories of power and impact of people being converted. Show us how great of an apostle you are, Paul. And so Paul comes up, very unimpressive, not much of a bodily presence. Well, let me, let me tell you about my most recent trip. God is my witness. I was at Damascus a little while ago, and the king wasn't too happy with me. So I crawled out of there, and then I hid in a basket, and then I ran away, and then I came here. Imagine praise team having to follow up that message, right? 
Come on, Paul. Aren't you the great apostle Paul? We want stories of power. We want stories of impact. I don't want to hear about you hiding in this basket. This guy is not who we thought he was. Why do you seem so weak? He doesn't come off as a speaker that we'd automatically think of or even a speaker that we'd invite back. He's not eloquent. There's nothing special about him. You bump into this guy at Starbucks, he doesn't talk about his, his strengths. He keeps talking about his weaknesses. He doesn't talk about his trophies or his press, press releases or his religious comp- accomplishments. He talks about those things that make him feel weak, his struggles, his sufferings, his limitations. You sit next to him at a wedding reception where we all like to present our best foot, uh, we put our best foot forward, and instead of showing off about his strengths, he talks about his handicaps. And let me keep going, he says. Let me keep boasting about my weaknesses. Look at chapter 12, verse 5 through 10. Chapter 12, verse 5 through 10, it says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from that, so no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's talking about his spiritual experiences, to keep me from becoming conceited regarding those, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all, the more, boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he had. This amazing apostle had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. It's probably some kind of physical handicap, maybe some kind of weakness, some kind of illness. Something about him was frail. Maybe he had bad eyes. We don't know what it is. And honestly, it doesn't matter that much what it is. But this is the mighty Apostle Paul, and I'm very thankful to see this side of Paul that is not so strong. He's weak. He's pleading. It humanizes him when we see, Father, can you please take this away? Father, please get this out of my life. Father, please, would you remove this suffering? It's a child of God asking his father, would you please remove this from me. And let me make something clear here, okay? What we're talking about here is not, it's not some habitual sin pattern that Paul had. It's not some kind of sinful addiction that he had here that says like, you know, if, you, if I keep committing the sin, God, I know that you will, in, in the end, it'll work to your glory. It's not him abusing God's grace. Sin weakens us in a way that is counterproductive to our usefulness to the kingdom. What Paul is talking about here is some kind of natural limitation or weakness we have in our lives. It's not about the sin in our lives and the consequences of our sin. This is not a license to sin. It's some kind of natural circumstance, limitation, handicap, or difficulty that he's facing here, okay? 
But what we know about this is that it tormented him. This is not like a small thorn, okay? This is something that tormented him, or the word harassed or tormented him. It was something that was debilitating. It was chronic. It discouraged him so much, a messenger of Satan used to harass him. Not like a one-time annoyance. It was probably a chronic thing that constantly discouraged him and maybe even led him to despair. At least that's what Satan wanted, something that was severe, That's how it would have been, or that's what God or Satan would use this for in his hands. But in God's hands, it says the same experience was something to keep him from becoming conceited. You see that in verse 7 at the beginning? It says, to keep me from becoming conceited. At the end of verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Because it's sort of understandable. If you're Paul... If you don't have this thorn in the flesh, if you're so gifted, you're so knowledgeable, he didn't have much of a presence, but he was brilliant. If he couldn't, if he had that, how does he like keep himself from becoming prideful? He has the best resume possible for what he's done for Christ. How much do we love to boast about anything? Uh, Look at how much I've suffered. We love to take and become self-righteous about our suffering. I've suffered more than that person, therefore I'm better than that person. Paul here says, you know, because of my great experiences in heaven, God had to give me something to keep me from becoming conceited. And he says, you know, I've had this ultimate spiritual experience, but God, God had to humble me. And I like how the message version of the Bible, the message is not a translation, it's a paraphrase of the Bible, okay, just to be clear. But I like how the message version of the Bible paraphrases this section. Verse 7, it says, Because of the extravagance of those revelations, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angels did his best to get me down. What he in fact did was push me to my knees. No danger of walking around high and mighty. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, oppositions, bad breaks, I, let, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. To keep me from becoming conceited, to push me to my knees, to cut me down to size. Man, isn't, wouldn't it be good for all of us if we're honest to be cut down to size? Don't we need that? People in our lives that will humble us, that will rebuke us, circumstances that will maybe even humiliate us, because that's the way to humility. We need people around us to cut us down to size. Uh, This took place right here in this very spot. You know what I like to do with my children? I like to use them to feed my ego, okay? to make me feel big-headed. And so whenever there's a really buff guy around, like a really buff guy, I was like, hey, Tabby, who's stronger? 
daddy or that guy? And then she's for, for her first two, three years of her life, daddy, daddy. I'm like, who's stronger, that really buff guy or daddy? Daddy's the strongest. And it was about maybe two months ago, some of you are witnesses, I was standing right here, I was trying to puff up my ego again. I was like, Tabby, who's, strong, who's strongest, that guy or daddy? And she goes, Jesus! <laughs> no! <laughs> That's not how I trained you. I was so proud of her, at the same time I was a little embarrassed. My son still thinks I'm the strongest. I can manipulate him, right? Maybe for like two more months, right? But my, my daughter was able to apply the theology outside of our little interaction. She's like, okay, if God is the strongest, he's definitely stronger than daddy, right? I can't even lie to my kid anymore, right? She, she calls me out, right? But I need that. You need that. People that will cut us down to size things that will cut us down to size. Three times Paul pleads, and it was probably a consistent habitual thing, not, th- not just three times, but many more times. Father, please take this away. Get rid of it. Relieve me of this burden. I'm sure we can all understand that type of prayer. A child is asking his father, take this suffering away. But instead, the father embraces him. And tells him, Paul, if I take this away, you'll never learn the, le- the lesson that I'm trying to teach you. What lesson is that, Father? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's not the answer we want, but that's the answer Paul got. Paul, I'm not going to take it away, but I will give you the grace to bear it. And in the process, I'll give your pride the knockout blow so that you'll depend on my power and not your own. I like how the message puts it. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. And when that day comes, It's a case of Christ's strength moving in on your weakness. It's your salvation being lived out. And these limitations coming down to size and the weaker I get, the stronger I become and Christ becomes more real. And in those moments, there's something that happens where you experience Ephesians 3, the power and love of Christ. I don't like preaching passages like this secretly, and this is probably not correct, but this is what I sort of think in my mind. I don't like preaching passages on suffering because I'm scared that God is going to make me live it. And maybe who will? I don't want to though. And frankly, in my flesh, when I see you guys, I don't want you. In my flesh, if I could, I would prevent you from having to experience these types of passages. Maybe that's because I tend to value comfort more than Christ-likeness. But that's honestly how I feel. Because this passage, right now, if it doesn't mean much to you, maybe one day it will. But you will experience these types of passages when you feel absolutely and utterly helpless and weak.
Have you ever felt that? Stay in the church long enough, and you will. Have you ever felt strong at a funeral? Have you ever felt strong when you're at a hospital and the heart, heart monitor is turned off? Do you feel adequate at those moments? When physical ailments overtake you, past trauma won't leave you. We have lingering, lingering wounds that need healing, an aging process that we can't slow down, physical weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, relational brokenness. You know, I tell people this all the time, and maybe it's a little bit prideful of me to talk like this, but to some degree, I know I could take care of myself. I could take care of myself. It was just me. I could handle certain things. I could handle what life throws at me. I have the training. I have the theology from the Word. I've, I've been trained enough in the Christian life where I know how to handle myself to some degree. But if I'm honest, if Satan were to go after me, it wouldn't be to go after me. It would be to go after my family. It would be to go after those I love. That will weaken me more than anything else. That would be the best way for Satan to torment me. I know from experience of this church that if I'm guessing, like a fair guess is that the majority of us, maybe more than half, nothing makes us feel weaker than family. If you have a family that's a blessing to you, that, that praise God, praise God, I'm happy for you. But for many of us, those that we love, we know it's more of a curse. It's more of a burden. Have you ever looked at someone you love? They're spiraling in the wrong direction. And there's nothing you could do for them. You ever looked at someone you love who says they don't want to live anymore? whose soul is gone astray. This constant thorn in our sides that torments us, but maybe something that drives us to our knees. It's those that we honestly don't want to love, but we love those who constantly burn in us and we can't get away. And it's not a small nuisance. It's a chronic discouragement. It pains us like nothing else. There's nothing that makes me feel more weak than when I see those I love and I can't do a thing. 
and you feel so inadequate, you, you feel so weak, maybe even humiliated, and you've come face to face with your limitations during a pandemic, you've come face to face with the fact that you are not God, everything around you, all of your worldview, everything you thought about yourself is being broken down, all of your false idols, all your false hope, all your self-confidence, and that trauma, that chronic pain that you've gone through, You know, I, like, uh, I usually try to suppress it, but, you know, I'm a cynic. I know I am. You know, most cynics are former optimists that have been hurt by life, honestly. And I'm not going to suppress it at this moment. You know, if, if this is going to sound a little weird, but if you love people, honestly, life sort of sucks. Why do I say that? Because you feel their pain. You feel their suffering. The more people you love, the more burden you carry. And you know, we're in the season of gains right now. We're gaining relationship, marriage, degrees, houses, whatever it is. But as we get older, we realize we're facing issues where the people we love You start to face losses. They don't want to live anymore. You have experienced the loss of a loved one or loved ones. And there's no going back to normal after that. There's no going back. To, there's no like recovering from someone who has seeing a loved one take their own, there's no recovering from that. Some of you have been to way too many funerals. And you know when you go through like a good thing in your life, how long does that last? How long does you feel that joy? Maybe a week. Well, honestly, I, the reason I say this life's for suck, when you go through suffering, it may last for the rest of your life. It will linger. And that stuff weighs on us more than good times. Spurgeon says, and he's making a point here, but we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. That's just true. I just think that's natural. Our suffering in this life, Romans 8, will outweigh the glory of this life. Bad times just hit us harder than good times. And, you know, I think I'm so wise. I think I'm so smart. I've been trained in seminary. I have counseling uh, training. I've been through enough uh, experiences as a pastor. I've, I've, I know I've seen different things. And then God brings one person in my life to show me that I know nothing I can't save them. I can't change their hearts. I say all the right words, and if only they would just follow this and do that, but there's something so much deeper. I can't do it. I'm not God. And all I could do is lay there at night burdened. And if I'm in a better place, pray. 
God, where are you? Do you love them? Do you really love them? Do you care for them? Have you given up on them? God, how come you're not answering the prayer that I want you to answer? How come you're not answering in the way I want you to answer it? I've been praying for them for years. And then these thoughts enter my mind, especially at night, this messenger of Satan tormenting me relentlessly. Or an instrument of a loving father who's trying to humble me. That thing in your life where you say, that's not how I wish it went. I wish, I wish it wasn't like that. I, I'm so burdened. But by the grace of God, one day at a time you're here. Just one day at a time. You may not feel like you're making progress, but maybe faithfulness in that season just looks like treading water. Just make it one day at a time. And Satan in that season would want you to think that God has messed up. God has made a mistake putting this in your life, giving you certain weaknesses, certain limitations. He's made a mistake putting you through such suffering. We ask God, why have you made me like this? Why are you putting this in my life? Do you love me? Have you messed up? God has not messed up. He's made you who you are. He loves you. And yet he limited you. So that you'll lead out of weakness and brokenness, not out of your own strength and power. So that you won't confuse your power for his power. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, trauma, abuse, failures, all gifts that make us weak and if embraced, gifts that strengthen us gifts from God handmade by our potter. We think to ourselves, if only, if only, if only I wasn't like this. If only I was more like him. If only I was more like her. If only I was physically healthier. If only my circumstances were better. If only my family wasn't so messed up. If only I wasn't single. If only I wasn't married. If only I, had a, I was better with my words. If only I could control that, that frailty in my body. If only I could change their heart. If only I could get out of this tortuous season. Then I would be effective for Christ. Quoting one pastor named Alistair Begg, he says this, have you ever considered the possibility that your limitations, your weaknesses, your handicaps may prove to be the key to your usefulness and service to Christ? Because who helps the strong person? You know, in one sense, I want my daughter to be independent. I want her to learn. I want her to have grit. I want her to persevere and to be able to struggle and don't give up. But 
Another thing that I, I maybe appreciate more is when she's facing a task that is completely unmanageable for her. She's facing her limitations. She's trying to carry this humongous box. I appreciate so much when she has the humility to stop trying to pick up the 100-pound box, look at daddy, and say, daddy, I can't do it. Can you help me? With a smile. Who helps the strong person? Who helps the proud? Oh, you're strong. Then I won't help you. God said, oh, you're fine? Then I'll leave you alone. Oh, you're weak. Let me give you my strength. When I am weak, then I am strong. And the opposite of that is when I am strong, therefore I am weak. The weakness of strength and the strength of weakness. I lift up my eyes to the hills, to the heavens. Who, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And her eyes go up to me or our eyes go up to God. And in the kingdom of God... Do you understand that weakness and effectiveness go together? Brokenness and usefulness go together. Inadequacy and blessing go together. You know, today, the spirit of today's age is strength, self-confidence, self-reliance, self-help. Break free of your limitations and weaknesses. That's the culture. We live in this culture where it's all about competency. That's our new religion. How competent can you be? Everything in us wants strength. We were raised to delight in strength. You should despise weakness. We deny our weaknesses. You come to church. You try to be a Superman Christian. You replace strength with grace or grace with strength. Which one? It says me-centered Christianity that says you have to be strong. And that's your greatest weapon, the world says. You have to have it all together. And Jesus says your greatest weapon is your weakness. Look at Hebrews 11. Okay, I'll put it up. Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Did Christ embrace the strength of weakness? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. 
Even Christ, our Lord, who was sinless, embraced the strength of weakness. He was strong, but he became weak on our behalf so that we who are weak can become strong in him. And what did he do in the garden? He cried out, Father, please take this away from me. I need you, God. And if Jesus was that desperate for God's strength, how much more desperate do we need to be? You know, if you don't know, I was a pastor for 12 years uh, before we started Savior, and um, it's long enough time where you've seen people suffer. You've seen enough people suffer. I've seen terrible things happen to those in our church or in our previous church, things that make me feel angry, things that make me feel sad, things that make me feel weak, things that make me feel helpless. And at a certain point, we all know, maybe some of you have been there where you look at someone and you're just like, all you could say is, I love you and I'm here for you. I love you and I'm here for you. And when I look back, Maybe the constant ache or what makes me the saddest is that there are people where very understandably, I understand, they've been through hell. And there's just such a harshness to them afterwards. I understand. They have this bitterness and you see it, oftentimes you could see it in their eyes. They're bitter, they roll their eyes, they're prideful, they're rebellious. They believe the messages of Satan and their heart is hardened by the difficulties of life. But what I could say to our church and maybe it's weird to say I'm proud of this. I've seen people who are wrecked by life, pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, and they have this childlike faith that just looks at God's faithfulness in the Bible, God's acts, past acts of faithfulness in the scriptures, in the gospel, in their life, and like a child, they trust their father. And I'm so proud of them. And the world will look at you like you're naive. God sees that as precious. And they have soft eyes when they come across other people who suffer. They don't think like, I've been there, I've been through that, I know better. They've been through hell and yet, by some supernatural miracle, they are not hopeless. They are not discouraging. They are lion and lamb. We just went over Genesis. Those are the Josephs who will make an impact for the kingdom. Not just those who are lions, but those who are lambs, 
Who's the perfect picture of that? Jesus. Not just those who could be courageous, those who could be humble. You need both. They know that the suffering of this life, they know. The difficult thing about this passage is that it never promises, like, oh, God never promises at the end. He's like, hey, Paul, I'll make it easier. I'll, I'll ease your suffering. Never promises that. In fact, the Bible promises the opposite of that. It may never get better in this life. In this life, your suffering will outweigh the glory. And it may almost seem insensitive to say, but this is what the Bible says, that in view of what we have coming for us as believers, your suffering is a light and momentary struggle compared to the eternal glory that is to come. Heaven will make up for it. That's where you are. I'm so proud of you. Maybe this is the type of year you had Satan tormenting you, life keeps pushing you down, circumstances are difficult, but in the struggle, and I know it's not always victory, I know it's not always victory, but in the struggle, you find somehow, somehow, there's some kind of joy in your salvation. You taste and see that the Lord is good. And listen to me and don't misunderstand what I'm gonna say. If that's the type of year you've had, it's been tortuous, it's been depressing, it's been so difficult, chronic pain, But if you've experienced more of Christ, you had a good year. There's nothing more encouraging than someone who suffers well. And if that's what you're going through now and you're in the middle of it and maybe you're buying into all the message of Satan it's time to take your eyes off of yourself. You hear me quote this verse all the time, but 2 Corinthians, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20, a weak, pathetic king named Jehoshaphat says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, God. And the New Testament version of that is Hebrews 12 that says, in the middle of your suffering, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Who for the joy set before him, what did he endure? He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His suffering led to glory. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. My eyes are on Christ. Would it really be of any help if I just said, hey, just toughen up, just get through it, you're fine? No, that's terrible advice. You need fuel, and what is our fuel? When the gospel is in our souls, we will not burn out. We will persevere, we won't quit. Church, Throw off the things that hinder you, self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself. 
The temptation to be bitter, self-dependence, self-confidence, pride, self-sufficiency. Throw off the sin that so entangles you and run this race with perseverance. In, man, this life is going to be hard. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what we should expect. We should expect that, but don't fall into despair. In your groaning, in your suffering, in your hardship, in your weakness, depend on Christ for strength one day at a time. And the weaker you feel, I hope the harder you'll lean. In those moments of weakness, Romans 8:26, when you are weak, the Spirit, may the Spirit help you. May the joy of your salvation sustain you. May the power of Christ rest upon you. And I pray that you will trust and believe that his grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would never be a church that is so strong. So tough. So self-sufficient. But like the heroes of Hebrews 12 or the heroes of the Bible, we would be weak and you would make us strong. Father, for those that are lost right now and they are your children, I pray that your spirit would witness to their hearts at this moment and testify to their hearts that they are your children, that you love them, and they would cry out, Abba, Father. I pray that your spirit would broaden our perspective and we will be able to see our suffering in view of eternity. I pray your spirit will give humility so that we may reach out for help. We may tell others, I need you, I need God. That we would take away and humble ourselves and be cut down and we would embrace the strength of weakness. Touch their hearts now. Give them your grace. Give them the joy of their salvation. And God, would you help them persevere? We lift up our eyes. Where do we look? We look to heaven. We look to the creator. Our help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. You are the strong one. God, help us never to forget that. And how you invite us to come to you to receive your grace not with harsh eyes, but with gentleness and love and sympathy. And I pray that during this time you would help us to suffer well, we would gain righteousness which will last for all of eternity. Jesus, help us, Lord. 
Help us, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.